Good morning. That was great. Yeah, we are officially into the Christmas season now. For those of you that I haven't met, I'm John. I'm the pastor here. And uh, we are getting ramped up for all the Christmas things. And one of the things that my family is looking forward to is going home. So this is home, for the record, um, but it's not home home. Okay, it's not, it's not the home that my wife and I grew up in. She grew up near Jamestown, New York, and I grew up near Rochester, New York. And um, so we're going to go back over the Christmas season. Uh, we did mention, and I don't think we've said this yet, but just so you know on your calendar, um, we have our Christmas Eve Eve service on the 23rd. That Keith did the math for us. Very thankful for that. Um, that's on the 23rd. That's a Saturday night. Um, and then we will not have church on Sunday morning, which is Christmas Eve, and we will not have church the week after that. We always take the last week of December off so people can travel and all that kind of stuff, and we'll start back with the first Sunday of the new year. So over those couple of weeks, we will be traveling up to New York to spend some time um, with our family. And before you get any ideas, don't try and rob us while we're gone. Um, I have cameras everywhere. Okay, and I will know if you or anyone else is there. But we'll be we'll be home. This is not like a home alone situation. So we're um, we'll be going up to New York, and uh, one of the things that happens with our family, I'm sure it happens with your family as well. Now, for us, we um, don't see each other a lot. I see my parents a couple of times a year. I usually see my brother and his family, maybe like at Christmas, and my sister and her family at Christmas as well. So we get together, we're all catching up, we're telling old stories and all of that. And if you've ever gone together with your family, you know that there are certain stories that just come up over and over and over again in your family. Those, those classics that just get pulled out. And I have several favorites, but it's always interesting to me to hear everybody talk about those things, especially as time goes on and our memories start to change a little bit, to hear everybody talk about what actually happened in that moment. And everybody's perspective is different because time has passed and things change in our mind. And, um, and because we all had different, we were different people at the time. We saw things differently. Our personalities were different. Our actual vantage points of what was happening were different. And so we noticed different things. We remember different details. We share different things. And that's always pretty interesting. And um, one of my favorite stories, I think that really gets this point across, is one night when I was young and we, our family was playing wiffle ball in the backyard. This is lovingly known as the day that my mom broke my dad's face. Okay. It's more dramatic than it really is, but we were in the backyard. We would often go in the backyard and play wiffle ball together as a family. And so, but we, you know, we had our kind of janky backyard wiffle ball set up because home base was the spigot on the house. That was home plate. And then we actually did have one base that was first base. And that was where first base should be. Second base, we couldn't quite get the things to line up. So it was just a little off to the left, which meant that first base to second base was longer than home to first base. But second base was the slide. And uh, we had one of those, I call it the skillet, you know, sheet metal uh, on just a piece of plywood, essentially with some plywood sides on it. That was the slide. And so uh, we would, that was second base. You had to jump up and step on the slide in order to hit second base. And then third base was the tree in the side of the yard. So we had our, our little wiffle ball set up back there. And one night it got a little rowdy because uh, Doug, that's my dad, Dr. Doug, Doug was talking a little trash and he was pitching. And so um, my mom, who is, she's a little lady, okay? She is not, she is like, I don't, I don't know if she's over five feet tall. I think she's like four something. I don't know. She's short, but she is competitive. And in fact, all the Allens are competitive. And so our evening wiffle ball games will get a little rowdy. But mom was very competitive. She was a sprinter in high school or a, 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 a hurdler in high school, like state, went to the state and everything. 
All right, so she's super competitive, and dad was talking a little bit of trash, and mom got up to the plate. Now, my sister, if I recall correctly, is catching. She's behind mom. It's right by the spigot. My brother is playing sort of outfield, sort of infield, um, just kind of wandering around, and I'm on second base. All right, so I'm looking, I'm looking to third because i got to pay attention to where I'm going. Right, so I'm going to third. I'm behind dad who's pitching. Dad's wearing these aviator sunglasses because it was the 80s. And he was cool. And so he is, he's out and he's pitching. I'm at second base. I, I can't see mom. I, all I can see is dad. I can't see through him. And so I'm, I'm listening for the sound of the bat. That's what I'm listening for. And then I'm, gonna, I'm getting ready to take off. So dad pitches and he's been talking trash and mom has been bowing up. Okay. And so, so she is ready. She swings. And from what I understand, now I had to hear this from my brother and sister because I couldn't see it that the veins in her head were popping out as she swung with all of her might. And she swung with all of her might and all of her athleticism and made perfect contact with the ball and beelined that ball straight back toward my dad's face and hit him with all her power right in the bridge of the nose. Now, I couldn't see any of this. They had to tell me all of this. This is what I saw from second base. I heard the crack of the wiffle ball bat or the thud or whatever. I heard the bat, and then I just saw glasses just explode out from his face. So I think I had the funniest vantage point, even though I didn't necessarily have all the information. But uh, dad was bleeding from his nose. Mom was still talking trash to him, I believe, after she did it. It is quite a memory as a family. But it's interesting how to hear the story from my sister's perspective, who was right there, my brother, who kind of saw it all unfold, my dad, who saw nothing but blackness, and me (laughs) seeing the glasses explode off of his face. It's quite a family memory, but it's really neat how in one moment you have multiple people who see things different ways and then tell the story from their vantage point. It gives you a a bigger picture of what's going on. One of the things I love about scripture is that we have multiple authors who were there or who witnessed or who found, heard accounts of the same things, and then they all have different perspectives on what actually happened, and it gives us this beautiful, clear picture of what the story was, whatever it was. And that is true of the birth of Jesus as well. It's true of the nativity. In the, in the gospel accounts, we get four different versions of, not different, but four varied perspectives on what happened the night that Jesus was born or in the days that Jesus was born. And the, the personality, the experience, the intent of the authors all inform what details they include or don't include. And so I want to talk about that a little bit as we start off, because today we're going to read from John, and next week we're going to read from Matthew, and in our Christmas Eve Eve service, we're going to read from Luke. And they all have different perspectives. So I want to talk first about what they are, um, who the gospel writers were, why they wrote their gospels, what details they chose to include or not include about the birth of Jesus. So we'll start off um, with Matthew. Matthew was one of Jesus' followers. He was there from basically the beginning. He was there for almost everything. So he saw it with his own eyes. And after Jesus gave his life, after Jesus was resurrected, Matthew wanted to share his account with the inspiration of the Spirit to share what he saw and what he experienced. And specifically, Matthew wanted to share that with the Jews the Jews who didn't believe in Jesus yet. And so the purpose of Matthew's gospel is to take, 
to convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah they had been waiting for. So in Matthew's gospel, he has a messianic focus in his gospel. That's why he writes it. So Matthew includes a ton of prophecy, Old Testament prophecy in his gospel, because he's getting Jews who would have been familiar with that to, to see this is the guy. This is who you've been waiting for. He is Messiah. And so that's his purpose. So when it comes to the actual birth of Jesus, Matthew starts with a genealogy. He starts with a history so that they can see the connection between King David and Jesus. Because they need to know, Jews need to know that he is the son of David. That is what was prophesied. So uh, Matthew includes a lot of details like that, a lot of prophecy. And he also includes the uh, visit of the, the wise men. Okay, that's, he's the only one that records that. The, the arrival of the Magi, or the three, we three kings, okay, from Orientar, bearing gifts, we traverse so far, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. That's a southern song. Did you know that was a southern song? Following yonder star. Um, yeah, it's true. So anyway, he, that's why he includes all of that. The kings coming to worship and coming to visit Jesus, fulfillment of prophecy, that's why Matthew includes all that. Okay, so now Mark Mark um, wasn't there. He wasn't one of the disciples that was there day in and day out. And so Mark is working from a second source, um, most likely Peter. So Peter is probably the source for Mark. And Mark's focus, if you think about Peter, by the way, um, Peter in scripture is a man of action, isn't he? He's always jumping in. He's always doing. He's always the first one. He's the one who gets out of the boat when Jesus is walking in the water. Peter's the one who lops off Malchus's ear when he comes to arrest Jesus. Peter's the man of action. He's the one who jumps in. So Mark, who, who, whose source is probably uh, Peter, Mark focuses on Jesus' ministry. He has a ministry focus in his gospel. Mark, even though it's the shortest of the gospels, includes more miracles than any of the others. And Mark is writing most likely to the common Greek. So just to the average everyday Gentile person. So he doesn't include a lot of prophecy because he's not writing to Jews. He includes Jesus' actions. He has a ministry focus to his gospel. And then there's a challenge to everyone who reads the gospel at the end, what will you do? Okay, so he has a ministry, an action-based challenge at the end. So because of that, Mark doesn't tell us anything at all about the birth of Jesus. He doesn't include it at all. He starts immediately with the baptism of Jesus, which marked the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So that's why he doesn't include all of that. It doesn't serve the purpose of his gospel. So that's Mark. And then third, we have Luke. Luke also was not there. Luke came after the fact. Luke was essentially hired or commissioned by a guy named Theophilus to write a historical record of Jesus' ministry and then a historical record of the Acts of the Apostles. That's the book of Acts. So, so what Luke does is he goes and he interviews people that are still alive who were firsthand witness accounts and puts that all together in the form of the gospel. One of his um, closest friends was, uh, was Paul, who also wasn't there. But uh, Luke's focus is on sharing the facts of what happened with Jesus, specifically targeted at the more learned Greeks, the skeptics. One of the big things in Greek culture was, and you see this in philosophy, you see it all over the place in their religion, was the search for the perfect man. That was a big concept for them. Search for the perfect man. And so part of Luke's purpose in his gospel would be to show the Greeks, the learned Greeks, that Jesus was the perfect man. 
that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. So Paul, Luke has a historical focus. And then fourth, we get to John. And John, the first three are called synoptic gospels. We call them synoptic gospels. They're very similar to one another. John's gospel is very different from them. Not, not in detail, but in what John's purpose and what he chooses to focus on and share is very different than the other three. The way he writes is different than the other three. John was one of Jesus' closest friends. Many say he is his, would be his best friend, but he's one of Jesus' closest friends. He's the disciple that Jesus loved. And so uh, John's purpose, when John wrote his gospel, he most likely wanted it to be shared with believers, with Christians. So it's not evangelistic in the same way the first three are. His gospel was designed to, it had a relational focus. I think John was a relational guy. And so when you read through the gospel of John, what you see is a lot of personal extended interactions Jesus had with people. And it's interesting that the gospel of John uh, is written to believers, but it's about getting to know Jesus and that in him we might have hope. And so this is my encouragement always. If you're new to Christianity or if you're just getting to know Jesus and you want to know him better, read the gospel of John. And you're going to see Jesus interact with people. This is where we get in John chapter 3, the secret meeting he had with Nicodemus at night, the Pharisee. And it's extended. It's an entire chapter of the conversation that they had with one another where we get John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He said all of that in his conversation with Nicodemus. We also, this is where we get Jesus and the woman at the well. This is where we get Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. This is where we get a lot of these more extended personal interactions because John, because of his relationship with Jesus, wanted his readers to have a relationship with Jesus as well, a deep and meaningful one. And so when John talks about the nativity, Unlike Matthew, who focused on the genealogy and the kingship of Jesus, unlike Mark, who doesn't include it at all, and Luke, who I, I didn't mention before, but Luke focuses on the historical details of the nativity, which is why we typically read from Luke at, the Christmas, at Christmas time, because he gives the most detail of Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist and the angel coming to Mary and, and all those kinds of things, and the shepherds, and that's, that's all in Luke. John focuses on something completely different. John, in fact, goes back at the beginning of his gospel way before Jesus ever showed up on the scene here. And so that's what we're going to read from today as we start this off. And as I said, next week we'll read from Matthew. We'll get the king side of things. And then at Christmas Eve, Eve, we'll go to Luke, get the details. All right. So we're going to go to John chapter one. And John goes way back before any angel showed up or before any cattle were lowing or anything like that. Anybody was following a yonder star. All right. John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now the word he is talking about Jesus and he's going all the way back to the beginning. John very clearly believes in the Trinity, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, but distinct in three persons. And he says, Jesus was there in the beginning and he was God, unless, in case there's uh, any debate about that. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. 
And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So he goes all the way back to the beginning. and says, Jesus is not new, okay? Jesus was not created. Jesus is God. And he said he was in the beginning. In fact, he was the one who created all of this. He is the designer. Jesus designed, and I want you to think about this for a minute. Jesus designed this world for us. He created us and he created this world. And there is a beautiful intent for this world and for you. There's a purpose for this world and there's a purpose for you that he created us for. Jesus is an artist. He's an artist and he, he created this beautiful landscape and he created all of the intricacies of what we see, of who we are. This world is a piece of art and, and a true piece of art is an expression of the artist's passion. It's an expression of the artist's love. When, when Jesus created all of this, he created us, he created the world, when he created all this, it was an expression of his love and his passion. He loved it. When he was, when he was done, God looked at it and he said, this is good. This is, this is what I love. This is what I created. This is so beautiful. It's whole and it's deep and it's true. And it is, it, is, it is in harmony with one another. And he created this beautiful thing. He created life and light. And that was the light of men. This life was the light of men. But the darkness didn't comprehend it. So we as human beings, even though we are created to live in this beautiful world and this perfect relationship with God and to be an object of his love and to, to love him and to share with him and to share with one another, even, even though we were created for that, we couldn't, the, he's, the word he, comprehend here, it doesn't mean to think about, it means to lay hold of. We couldn't hold on to that because we loved the dark instead of the light, because we loved ourselves more than we loved God. And ultimately, that's what sin is. And so it was broken. Even this beautiful thing, this beautiful creation, the world, this world is a sculpture. It's a painting. It's a song. It's so much more and so much deeper than what people on their own give it credit for. It's this beautiful creation with intent now, I'm, I'm, I consider myself a little bit of an artist, and one, I love music in particular. And one of the things I love doing is I love learning about songs. You know, all the intricacies of the music, yeah, but I love when there's lyrics. I love learning about who wrote this and why they wrote this and what was going on with them and looking at the word choice that they have. And you can dig in and dig through a song and just one song all on its own and almost never reach the bottom of it. And as you learn about it and you learn about the artist, you learn about the producer, you learn about all these things, you start to see a depth and a beauty behind that piece of art that you don't see if you just listen to it. This world is like that. But the only way that we are going to see and experience the beauty and the depth of this piece of art is to understand the artist who created it and to know that Jesus is the one who created it. And so he's the one that we need to go to. He's the one that we need a relationship with. That's what John is trying to get right out of the gate, right out of the start of this, to see that Jesus created all of this and it was good, but the darkness couldn't lay hold of it, couldn't comprehend it. All right. 
part of the reason that Jesus came here was to show us what that life looks like, to demonstrate it for us so we could see what wholeness and what love and what compassion and all these things look like in bodily form, not just in concept, but in bodily form. What do they actually look like? It's part of the reason he came here. All right, let's go to verse 14. Now we're gonna jump around a little bit here, just change the order up a little bit. It doesn't change the meaning at all, but let's go to 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's the nativity from John. Just got the whole thing. <laughs> this, this, this is the detail that's important to John. This is the one that matters. There's no cattle. There's no wise men. There's no genealogies, well, except for him being in the beginning. The detail that matters to John is that the word became flesh, that the truth became flesh, that the creator became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We got to see what this looks like right in front of us in the person of Jesus, fully God and fully man at the same time. We got to see it, witness it, observe it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. We got to see this light. We got to see this life. John got to see it with his own two eyes every single day of Jesus' ministry. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. There's a word here that I think is really important. It's the word begotten. It's part of the reason, frankly, that we read um, in service from the New King James instead of other versions. I'm not a version snob, but I really like certain details that the New King James uses, such as in John 3.16, which we referenced earlier, for God so loved the world that he gave his, right? Well, some of you said only begotten and some of you said one and only, right? Because some versions say one and only son which I think could be a little confusing because, well, I'm a son of God too. The scripture says that I'm a son of God. So are me and Jesus the same? No, no, there's different words there. Those are different words. So it doesn't really mean one and only son. Begotten, I think is a better translation there. Begotten means to come out of. So, and it doesn't mean in this case, birthed. So Jesus wasn't birthed, he wasn't created, but Jesus came out of God begotten. He's the only begotten son of God. You and I are adopted sons and daughters of God. So that is different than Jesus. And I think this word begotten is is a great representation. It keeps that clarity or that distinction there. As of, and John says here, as of the only begotten of the father. He is God out of God here in the flesh. And he says, this is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, because I think this, this defines so much for us. Full of grace and truth. Something we often talk about. A full measure of grace and a full measure of truth. Not 50-50, not a blend, not 70-30, not a balance. Full of grace and full of truth at the same time. That's who Jesus was. That's what he put on display for us. That's the thing that as Christians, we are constantly trying to fight to achieve and to be in our life, full of grace and full of truth. We tend toward one side or the other to hit some sort of balance, but to be full of grace and full of truth at the same time, like he was. Verse 15, John bore witness of him. Different John, talking about John the Baptist, not the writer of the gospel, John. Um, I know that can be confusing if you're new around here or if you're new to the scripture. There are multiple people with the same name in scripture because that's what 
happens in real life. So uh, John, the writer of the gospel, is not the same as John the Baptist. All right. John the Baptist bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. So John went before Jesus. John the Baptist went before Jesus, Jesus' cousin, and proclaimed the arrival of the Messiah. And interestingly, John is the first person in Scripture who is said to have been filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. That was uh, part of what the prophecy that was said to Zacharias, that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, which was altogether different, something people had never seen before. And so he was out proclaiming. And so they saw this man who was full of the Spirit, John the Baptist, and they thought he was the Christ. And he said, no, 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 I'm not the Christ. There's one who's preferred before me because he is from before me and he is coming after me. And he was talking about Jesus. And then he's the one who baptizes Jesus. Verse 16, and of his fullness... We have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We just finished teaching all, the, all about that in the book of Galatians series we finished last week. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. So with Jesus here, the word in the flesh we saw God. We saw the perfect reflection of grace and truth at the same time. We saw the kind of life and the kind of relationship that we were originally created for. And so if we want to honor Jesus and if we want to live in the light and the life that we were created for, we need to look at the life and the example of Jesus and say, I want to be like him. I want my life to look like his life. Now, that's going to look a little different in 2023, almost 2024, than it did in, it depends on how you, who you ask and how they date things. But then, <laughs> it's going to look a little different. But I want to be like him. I want to be like him because he is the light. He is the expression. He is God in the flesh. He is the word taking on flesh and dwelling among us. And so I want to look at him and I want to know him and get to know him the best that I possibly can. And that's why I always recommend, as I said earlier, if you're going to get started in the scripture, start with reading the gospel of John. There is nobody on earth that knew Jesus better than John did. He knew him. He knew what made his, what, he knew his heartbeat. He knew his actions. He knew his priorities. He knew the way that he interacted with people, the way he responded to people, the way he dealt with religious people, or the way he dealt with broken people. He understood the way that he, he spent his time and his energy. He understood the way that he, he rested and the way that he worked. And G, John saw all of this, and nobody knew it better than he did except maybe his mama. And so, but John knew his mama, and John was tasked with taking care of Mary. All right. So if you want to get to know Jesus, read the gospel of John, study the gospel of John, take it in, take Jesus in as you read and get to know him on a personal level. We see a perfect representation of a, of a, of a human being perfectly in step with the spirit, father, son, and Holy Spirit at the same time. And that's what we want to do. That's who we want to be. And so we need to look at his example and we need to learn from him. How did he deal with difficult people? You ever have to deal with difficult people? No, me neither. <laughs> and none of you, none of you, right? You can see that in scripture. I know this one may sound a little odd, but how did he deal with or how did he think about money? Some of you are like, 
Did Jesus have money? Yeah, he did. Judas was the keeper of the money bag and helped himself to it. It's part of his problem. All right, but yeah, they had, they had finances in the ministry. What did they do with it? Did Jesus go and did he, what did he, did, what did he do with it? How did, did he help people or did he help himself? How, what did he do with it? How did he think about stuff like that? Practically. I mean, we're talking about practical stuff here. It's not just all conceptual. We're talking about real stuff. How did Jesus, how did Jesus uh, spend his time? What did he spend his time doing? When he needed to, you know, often Jesus would have these big, huge ministry moments, and he, like us, he would come out of that big ministry moment and be exhausted. I, if, you've, if you've ever served regularly in church, you might have experienced that after you've served in this kind of capacity on Sunday afternoon or Monday or wherever, you can experience what, I talk to my dad about this all the time, uh, what we call spiritual fatigue. He says, you've been in the thick of it. You've been in the middle of it for, for an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours, and you might be physically exhausted or not. You might be mentally exhausted or not, but you're spiritually exhausted and you have to recharge and you have to rejuvenate. The same thing was even true with Jesus. After Jesus had these big ministry moments, what you'll often find is him going off to pray by himself. Oftentimes all night long. He'll just go and get away from everyone and spend that time in prayer, refreshing, rejuvenating, not just doing something fun to recharge, but spiritually recharging. And he did that in prayer. So, how did he do that? How did he rest? How did he, and, and thinking about our own lives and how we plan that in and expect that and put that into our pattern and into our rhythm so that, that we can walk in the same way Jesus did. How did Jesus, how did Jesus um, comfort people who were hurting? How did he respond to them with grace and truth? What did he do when he interacted with somebody who was um, caught in sin? Or, or was sinful or considered sinful or ostracized by other people in the society? How did he respond to them? How did he interact with them? What did he do for them? How was he the full embodiment of grace and truth at the same time? On the other side of the coin, how did Jesus deal with people who were uh, uh, arrogantly, hypocritically religious? Differently. <laughs> Very differently. How did he interact with them? How did he, how did he speak to them? All that. How did, he, how did Jesus respond when he was attacked or persecuted? And he was. What was his response to that? As we read through the scripture and we learn about who he is and we see all of these different things, they're like a mirror for us. And we look at Jesus and the question we should ask is, Am I like that? Am I gracious like that? Am I truthful like that? Am I responsive like that? Am I patient like that? Am I, am I kind like that? Am I, am I generous like that? It's Jesus' life is a mirror to, to reflect back on us. And, so, and we use it as a, as a way to learn what our life is supposed to look like, what our character is supposed to look like. And he's constantly reflecting back to me, and I'm sure if you're on this journey as well, that he's constantly reflecting back to you, and we're seeing things in that reflection that we don't like. We say, ooh, that's not like Jesus at all. 
I have a lot of like frustration and turmoil with my own life and heart or, or judgmental thoughts about people in certain positions or other things that I look at often. And it's like, as soon as I, in my heart and in my head, it, it seems to make sense. But then as soon as I verbalize it to someone else or whatever else, I'm like, ooh, that's not like Jesus at all. And we're constantly working on those things so that we can live like Christ. Right after Jesus um, uh, returned and then uh, he, he died on the cross, he rose again. He was here for a little while and then he ascended to heaven. And after that, the church began and started to flourish and grow. And at first it was just called the way. People called it the way. It wasn't until there were believers in a place called Antioch that were so committed to following Jesus that the people in the area, the people outside who were witnessing them and witnessing and observing what they were doing, labeled them Christians, Christ-like, Christ followers. A Christian, we use that word and we throw that word around, but a Christian is a person, now listen, I understand that in, in our society and in our world, when we say Christian, we're typically talking about somebody who's saved. Okay, they're saved. They've accepted Christ as their savior. They put their faith in Jesus' work on the cross. They believed in him and now they're saved. And so now they're a Christian. Honestly, I wish we didn't use the word that way. I wish we didn't because what we have is we have tons of people in the world who say they're a Christian because they accepted Jesus as their savior, but their life looks nothing like him. And so, so they're out there in the world, they're saying, I'm a Christian, and people are developing their idea of who Christ is based on the way that this person is acting and behaving, and it's nothing like Jesus, and that's a problem. In my head, we, I, this is just the way that I think of it functionally. A person who has accepted Christ as their Savior is saved. But it's a person who has committed their life to following Jesus that's truly a Christian. Now, the person who hasn't following Jesus is still saved. I'm not saying that they have lost their salvation or anything. But I'm saying that a Christian is somebody who commits themselves to being like Christ in an increasing level in their life, who is chasing after the best thing that God has created them for, the world and the creation and the beauty and the artistry of all of this that the artist created for us, that wants to walk in the life and the light that God designed for us, and to walk in fellowship with Jesus and to walk in fellowship with other people. To me, that is a Christian. And so my question to you, because you can go through the whole Christmas season and believe that Jesus was born and believe that he died on the cross and believe that he rose again. But if you haven't committed your life to following him and becoming like him as the perfect example, the word become flesh, then what's the point? What does it change? But when you look at that baby in the manger and understand who he was, and the example that he set, and you say, my life is committed to him and emulating his life, that makes this whole entire season take on so much more depth and dimension and beauty. Jesus brought this light to the world, but the world is so hardened against the truth of God that the world couldn't accept him, even though the light and life was standing right in front of him. In verse 10, John says, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own. He's speaking of Israel. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, 
To them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That even though the world didn't recognize him, even though it was God in the flesh, right in front of them, perfection, the, the, the design of the designer was right in front of them. Even the Jews who had been prophesied about, who Matthew tells us all about that, couldn't see him. But to those who do, to you, to me, that look at Jesus and know who he is and know what he's done for us, giving his life in our place on the cross and rising again on the third day. To those who do see, who can see through the darkness to see the light, he gave the right to become children of God, you and me. Not born of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's what Christmas is. That's what the nativity is. It's the opportunity for those of us who want to pursue and chase the light, who want to be who God created us to be, who want to spend eternity with him, the opportunity for us to do that and to be children of God. And to not only put our faith in Jesus for salvation and accept his sacrifice on the cross and the power of his resurrection, but to walk with him every single day and be transformed into his image so that we can experience this in our life. John says a lot later, not in the gospel of John, but in one of the letters that he wrote in 1 John. He says, behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Now, I learned this verse as a song, so I have a hard time not reading it in the cadence to the song. <laughs> so I try to change it up, but it's, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Yeah, yeah, so anyway, that song. So, and when I read it, I'm like, Behold what manner of love the Father has given. No, all right? Behold the kind of love that God has shown to us, has bestowed upon us that we could be called, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, meaning we aren't perfect yet. We aren't like Jesus yet. We're on this journey of being transformed, okay? The world does not know us because it didn't know him. Beloved, we're children of God. It has not been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. So our hope will be complete. We will be like him when he is revealed. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So John said, this is the response to understanding. This is the word, word become flesh. He has given us the right to become children of God. And in response to that, our response is to purify ourselves as he is pure. To look at the example of Jesus and say, my life is going to look like his life. And it's not going to be perfect until he's revealed, until he returns. But until then, I'm going to get as close in the, in the leadership and power of the spirit. We are going to get as close as we possibly can. And that is a daily decision. And the only way you can do that is if you know him. 
You and I have to know him. We have to know him inside and out. We gotta know his character, his actions, all of those things. Hold them up like a mirror and make the decision to say, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do that. God, change this thing in my heart and change this thing in my head and change all of this stuff so that I can become like Jesus. That is the proper response to Christmas. The nativity, the word becomes flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of God. And our response to that as children of God is to purify ourselves as he is pure. So think about that as you're heading into the Christmas season because quite frankly, this is a time in our lives, this time every year, that get very chaotic and very confusing and very distracting. And we can find ourselves slipping into things that we know we are not or should not be because of the pressure that's on us from all of these different things. Stay focused on bringing him honor and glory because Jesus Christ gave himself for us a sacrifice on our behalf. And so we thank him for it at Christmas. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your love for us, the provision of your son, the word becoming flesh. We don't deserve that salvation. We've not earned it. We've done nothing that qualifies us for it or anything like that. It's your grace. It's your love for us. You as the creator, Jesus, you as the designer, the artist creating all of this, something that you loved and created us for so that we could love you and you could love us. And yet we choose otherwise. As humans, we choose darkness over light. And uh, you loved us. You loved us enough to Jesus to humble yourself and come here and to take on uh, the form of a man, fully God, fully man, and then to humble yourself to the point of death on the cross. But even before that, as you made your way over several years from the beginning of your ministry to the cross, you showed us, you showed us what it looks like to be completely and perfectly in step with the Father. For us, that means to walk in the Spirit. It means to listen and to change and to grow, to read Scripture and get to know you, God, get to know you, Jesus, get to know you, Spirit, and to to see where the, the differences are, to see where the flesh is still ruling, to see where we've not yet been transformed and to identify those areas and then with your leadership guidance and help to be transformed into the image of Jesus. And so as we enter this Christmas season, as we're preparing for all that it has in store and the busyness and there's so many things going on around us and financial pressure and schedule pressure and and family, all this stuff that's happening around us, God, we want to maintain Christ-like character. We want to focus on why we're celebrating Christmas in the first place because you came and took on flesh and dwelt among us and displayed the glory of God. And so help us to see, help us over this season, Jesus, to get to know you better, to see who you are in practice and in character and to emulate that and to see that happen in our life across the board. We commit to that even now. Help us to stay consistent in that as all these things are happening around us, as the season unfolds. 
God, I pray for anybody in this moment who realizes they need to put their faith in Jesus for salvation, and they've never done that before, that in this moment, they would trust him and express that to you and just say, I trust Jesus for salvation, his death on the cross and his resurrection. And that you welcome them into your family in this moment by faith. And that from this moment, they make a commitment to honoring you, to becoming like Christ and learning what that means and what that looks like. God, help us to shed any misconceptions we have about Jesus that have been put on us by other people to see who he really is in the scripture so that our life can look like his. Even in this moment, if you show us areas where there's dissonance between our life and Jesus, show what it is, show us right now and give us a path out to walk in life, to walk in light, and to express our gratitude and our love for you with our entire life. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.